while you are turning to uh, Romans 11, if you're using one of the hardback Bibles, you'll find it on nine, page 947. Uh, while you're turning there, let me just uh, remind you uh, where we are, where we've been. Uh, today is the end of a five-week series on the solas of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, we started on October 29th, Reformation Sunday, that Sunday uh, closest to uh, October 31st, uh, Reformation Day, that day on which you mark the, the anniversary this year, the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses on the castle church door in Wittenberg. And as everything then was in Latin, certainly everything ecclesiastical was in uh, Latin in uh, the 16th century, uh, we started with sola scriptura, scripture alone. Uh, the Bible alone is our only rule of faith and practice, faith and life. Uh, we've looked at sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, uh, grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. And today we come to uh, the aim of salvation, the aim of creation, the aim of study, the aim of uh, the Reformation itself, uh, and what should be the aim of all people in all things, in all places, uh, soli deo gloria, for God's glory alone. Romans 11, uh, just four verses, verses 33 to 36. Let me ask that you stand as we read God's Word together. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor, or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. We pray, O Holy Spirit, as the one who uh, you inspired Paul to write these words, you were at work in his heart and mind. These, These words are his. Yes, they are yours also. You have kept them and preserved them that we, some 2,000 years later almost, would have those words in our hands, that we might read and know and understand them. And we pray that You would be at work through them, in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, that You would use them to grow in us a deeper love and awe for the glory of God, it's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. Um, I, I trust you'll bear with me long enough not to throw stuff at me uh, one sentence into uh, this sermon. I know this sounds arrogant and mean and judgmental in some way. Um, but I'm going to say it anyway. 
I also actually kind of hope it's true um, because I don't want to be the only one. You don't worship the God of the Bible. There, I said it. I just jumped right out of it. You don't worship the God of the Bible. I don't know who it is, whom it is. I don't know who you worship exactly or what you worship exactly. But I'm fairly confident that it isn't the God that the Bible shows us throughout Scripture. See, you and I will do one of two things at least. We will either try to make sense out of that which we cannot make sense. We'll try to, with our finite brains, wrap them around the infinite. We'll try to make sense out of something that we, as finite creatures, can't and shouldn't make sense of. Or, we will limit God's power in some way or another to make Him more palatable to yourself or to others around you. Have you ever thought to yourself, my God wouldn't blank. The God I worship would never reject anybody. The God I worship would never do that. Think of all the times we try to take hold of God and and drag Him down to our understanding. Uh, Or those times that we would rob Him of His sovereign power and purpose. Uh, Think about it. Perhaps, maybe none of you have done this, but it'll at least give you something of an illustration. Would you put a God Bless America sticker on your car? And then complain to Him when things don't look like He's blessing us. Or it's not going the way you think it should. He's there when things are going well. And when things aren't, when things are ugly, when things are difficult, we somehow try to say, well, God's not there in that. Or God doesn't want that. Or God doesn't mean that. Or you cite Romans 8.28, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. What we really mean is all things, those things better be good. When those things are difficult providences, we, we, we start to look for an excuse. We look for some way to explain away the less than pleasant all things. The God we worship in many ways is a God that we've made up based on what we think we want God to be or what we would do we think if we were God. But notice how Paul describes God in this passage. First of all, God is incomprehensible. Just look. Just glance at verse 33. Just look at the words that Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes in verse 33. Depth, uh, unsearchable, inscrutable. Those are, those are words of measurement. Man, they're probably words of immeasurement. Is that a word? Is immeasurement a word? We're making up a word this morning. They're words of immeasurement. In other words, 
they're intended to communicate that which you're trying to measure and can't. The depths are so deep, to use Augustine's quote, I see the depths, but I can't see the bottom. The depths are unfathomable. The depths are, they cannot be plumbed. The heights are so great, they can't be measured. The vastness, uh, so vast, that it cannot be taken in. That's the language of verse 33. Depth, unsearchable, inscrutable. When God doesn't make sense, we look for some man-centered way of justifying or defending or explaining God. We bring Him down from heaven, as it were, and shrink Him to conform to our judgments and understanding. I guess in some ways, maybe we're fighting an uphill battle. Maybe, maybe it's, you know, let's give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. It's, it's for evangelism's sake. Evangelism mandates that I shrink God in some way or another. Skeptics have questions. Skeptics, skeptics want to know things. And, and they're looking to poke holes in the Bible. They're looking to poke, poke holes in the God of the Bible, in your faith in Christ. And so they ask questions and we look for ways to answer them. There are answers, but they're not always easy to accept. They're not always the answers we want to hear. Maybe it's for evangelism's sake that we drag God out of heaven and, and give Him an explanation that fits our understanding. Or for that matter, maybe the hurting world around you wants answers from Christians as to why planes fly into buildings and why hurricanes seem to be ganging up on the Gulf Coast states all at once. They're looking for answers and explanations. And, and perhaps we're tempted to say, well, God didn't know that was going on, or, or God couldn't stop it because he was too weak or God didn't want to stop it because he's me. We, we, we struggle for answers. And that struggle makes us embarrassed of the God of the Bible. But look what that struggle does for Paul. Oh, the depths of the wisdom, of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. His ways are unsearchable and inscrutable. Rather than be ashamed, Paul boldly and confidently proclaims that God is completely other. And in many ways, I can't and shouldn't because I'm unable and because it hasn't been given to me, I can't understand Him. I can't know His thoughts his ways, his judgments. Paul actually celebrates the fact that he can't grasp God. As St. Augustine said, if you can grasp it, it isn't God. The depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Paul, by the way, doesn't mean to put riches in a list with wisdom and knowledge. And he certainly doesn't mean riches 
in the way you and I would think of that word, he's not talking about gold and material wealth. He's not talking about possessions. He's not talking about your bank account. He's, he means to say the aim of what he writes here, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. His wisdom and knowledge are unable to be measured. They're unsearchable. They're inscrutable. The depth is beyond what I can see. There are times when you lose your train of thought. There are times when you, some of you more than others, the words on the tip of your tongue and it just won't quite come out. You can't quite. You, you have a senior moment, you call it. You laugh it off, and I'm, I'm having a, a senior moment. I can't quite remember what it is I'm trying to say. God doesn't have senior moments. God doesn't forget the past. God doesn't, God doesn't forget what, what's behind Him. He doesn't forget the word He meant to say. He doesn't forget what He set out to do. Those times when your ADD kicks in, and you walk into a room... And you do something you didn't go in there to do. Only to forget why you went into that room to begin with. You had a plan. When, when I walked into the kitchen, I had a plan. I, I walk into these rooms sometimes and I stand there and I go, why am I here? I have to turn around and go back to where I came from and sort of retrace my steps. and remember, Oh, that's right. I was coming in here to get this. I had a plan, and somewhere between the den and the kitchen, I forgot my plan. So I had to figure it out all over again. God doesn't lose sight of His plan. God doesn't lose track of His intentions. The depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, His unsearchable and inscrutable judgments and ways. He doesn't lose track of what he was trying to say or do. He's never caught off guard. He's never blindsided. His judgment and ways are inscrutable and unsearchable. And Paul glories in that reality of God. He glories and celebrates. He stands in awe and wonder and amazement at just how vast God is. He celebrates the fact that His judgments are unsearchable and His ways are inscrutable. You know, I have on my shelf um, at least four or five. I tried, I didn't, I was thinking of this without being in my office. But at least four or five systematic theology books. Books that are intended to tell you everything there is to know about God. His character, His person, His ways, His works. A former professor of mine, I think Sean has had him as well, 
Dr. Kelly, Doug Kelly, is actually writing, I think, volume three of his three-volume systematic theology book. I'm not really sure why he needs to write one if Hodge and Hodge and Raymond and Grudem and all the others have written all that there is to write. That proves something to us, right? That proves that, that if that many really, really smart people can write that many volumes on God's person and work, just how much there is to study and to know, and yet left unknown to us. This passage, of course, is set in a context that might cause us a little bit of trouble. See, it would be easy to grab these four verses, rip them out of, especially since we're not in the middle of a series on the book of Romans, one day. It would be easy to grab these four verses and just completely rip them out of chapter 11 and think to ourselves, well, of course, in the context of creation, that makes perfect sense. In the context of the created order, I get it, His his ways, why are there constellations in the sky? Why are there stars? Why are there that many stars and not maybe a few more or a few less? Or why are we, why is that animal created and why not others? Or how come, in, the, in terms of creation and the created order, this makes sense to us. But that's not the context of Romans 11. It's not the context of Romans 9 through 11. It's not the context of Romans 1 through 11. The context is redemption, of salvation. We could look back at Romans 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the, the power of salvation to the Jew first and then. To the Gentile. We could look at Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We could look at Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. Is that the way you would have designed man created in your image, you know, to rebel against you? Do you really think God didn't see that coming? Do you really think God didn't know that was happening? He created us knowing full well we would rebel. Knowing full well that that would mean the death of His only begotten Son. Would you have created a world in which your image would rebel against you, bring judgment on themselves, judgment that should result in their death, but would actually lead to the death of your only Son in order to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God. There's, there's nothing about that that I would have thought to do. His ways are inscrutable. His judgments unsearchable. The context in this passage has more to do with Salvation, redemption, God's plan of redemption, than with creation itself. His ways are not my ways. His judgments are unsearchable. His 
ways are inscrutable. God is incomprehensible. But notice that Paul also describes Him as sovereign. Verse 35, who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? That verse may sound familiar to you. It's because it comes from Job 41. What a great illustration for Paul to use in this context. A great Old Testament history to to call to our minds in the middle of dealing with God as incomprehensible and sovereign. You you remember Job's story in, in one evening he loses everything. His children, his wealth, his possessions. And then in the next chapter loses his health. There's that scene in The Princess Bride. I guess it's the six-fingered man says to, when Count Rugen says to Prince Humperdinck, take care of yourself. Make sure you stay well. If you haven't got your health, you haven't got anything. That's where Job was. He's literally lost everything. He has his wife, but he's covered in sores and is unclean and is seated on a pile of ashes taking broken pottery and scraping the sores. He's convinced I haven't got anything. I've lost everything. He had friends. They appeared to be friends. These three friends who basically came and preached a theology of bad things don't happen to good people. Therefore, if all this bad stuff is happening to you, Job, you have done something wrong. There's some glaring sin in your life that you are choosing to ignore. Job initially says, I just, I'm not sure that's true. I don't think I believe that. We know, we're told at the very beginning, not by Job, but by God, that Job is a godly man, an upright, righteous, godly man. And it takes 38, 42 chapters for Job to learn what he's supposed to learn. No, God, I wasn't there to give you counsel and advice. Verse 34. I wasn't there to give you counsel and advice when you created Roaches. When you created mosquitoes, because I certainly would have objected to that. When you created cauliflower. Who wants cauliflower? Why does that exist? What is the point of that? Who was there to give him counsel and advice when he spoke into existence all that is God is sovereign over all of His creation. 
Or who has, has given such a gift to God that God is now indebted to that person? That's the quote from Job 41. Job ultimately learns. And Michael Card's Job Suite picks this up wonderfully. If you ever listen to Michael Card, he's got a song called The Job Suite, and it tells the entire story of Job. It's this long, it's a phenomenal song. Job finally reaches the point. He tried to argue with God. He tried to fight with God until he finally realized you were sovereign. You are all wise. You are all powerful. You are accomplishing your purposes in your creation for your glory. I therefore place my hand over my mouth. I'll stop speaking. I'll I'll hold my tongue. Because you alone are the eternal, sovereign creator, redeemer, And I am not here to give you advice and counsel. God lacks no wisdom. He lacks no knowledge. He lacks no understanding. He lacks no power whatsoever. And no one has given Him such a gift that He is now beholden, indebted to that person. Look back with me at chapter 9. And let me show you why this makes sense in this context. You can imagine, you and I are grabbing four verses completely with no context whatsoever. Paul, however, is is speaking. He's actually um, dictating this letter to his secretary. You find that out at the end of Romans. He's essentially preaching these 11 verses while his secretary writes. And so the time lapse from chapter 9 to the end of, from the beginning of chapter 9 to the end of chapter 11 wouldn't be that great. And in chapter 9, verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. It's in that context that Paul writes, You are sovereign. I place my hands over my mouth. Your ways and judgments are unsearchable and inscrutable. Who am I to tell you how you have messed up, O God? These chapters 9 through 11 deal not with creation, but with the redemption primarily of Israel and the relationship of of Israel and the Gentiles to the gospel of grace. God is in His sovereign power bringing about all that He has designed to accomplish. And you and I read Romans 9.13, which is a quote from Malachi, which refers back to Genesis 25, I think it is, and, and God chooses Jacob over Esau. 
He rejects the firstborn in favor of Jacob. Esau was the, um, the rugged outdoors type. The John Wayne of the two. Not the sneaking, cheating, lying, usurping, should we add annoying, younger brother. God rejected the one, quite honestly, that you and I would have chosen in favor of the one that you and I would have rejected, punched in the mouth if we could. See, we, we read of God's sovereign work in redemption and we look back at Him and say, but that's not fair. That doesn't make sense. The God I worship wouldn't reject anybody. Except the Bible tells us at least three times that He chose Jacob and rejected Esau. We want to cry, that's not fair. We want to give God advice on how to accomplish His purposes in this world. Never mind that these three chapters actually show us, yes, He rejected Esau and chose Jacob, only to later in time and space, Jacob rejects Christ so that Esau's descendants, the Gentiles, could be grafted into Christ. That's not the plan I would have designed. That's not the way I would have written it. We want to give God advice. We want to give Him counsel. We want to tell Him how He should have, and for that matter, how He should still accomplish Redemption. God, that's not fair. The God I worship wouldn't do it that way. My God wouldn't reject anyone. Maybe some of you know William Cooper's hymn well enough that it's running through your head right now. God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. He plants His plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. Blind unbelief is sure to err, 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 and scan His work in vain. God is His own interpreter and He will make it plain. God is incomprehensible. God is sovereign. Now I understand those two things don't sell today. We can't, we think, go out into this world and, and preach that kind of a God. We need to have, we think, a God that people can wrap their brains around and can understand. A God that will fit into our design and our pattern rather than the other way around. In 1815, Robert Haldane, a Scotsman, was sitting on a park bench by Lake Geneva. And he got into a conversation with some university students. They were studying for the ministry, but they were very obviously not converted. And so Haldane invited these students 
for a Bible study. Hey, let's get together and study the Bible together. It was this passage. These words that brought every one of them to faith in Christ. Haldane has written a phenomenal commentary on Romans. One of his students, Merle Daubigny, has written uh, several works on the history of the Reformation. It was this passage. Some of the things we're most embarrassed of, it was this passage that brought them to their knees in humble submission before Christ. Maybe the world we live in needs not a smaller, more manageable, more palatable, pocket-sized God. Maybe the world we live in needs the all-knowing, all-powerful, incomprehensible, sovereign God of the Bible, which leads us finally, God is incomprehensible, God is sovereign, God is also glorious. Paul begins... Verse 33. Oh. It's an exclamation of wonder and amazement. You and I, we we get to these at the end of a hike, we're at the top of a mountain, above the tree line, by a lake, looking back over all that we can see, and we say, wow. Paul gets to the, this, this pinnacle, if you will, of God's plan of salvation. And he says, wow, what an amazing, unsearchable, inscrutable, incomprehensible, sovereign God we worship. By the way, we try to capture this. We don't always do a very good job of it, but we try to capture this even in the way we pattern our worship services here at Grace Covenant. We intend to begin with the fact that God is incomprehensible, that He's completely transcendent, He's completely other before ultimately landing at His eminence, His accessibility with us. These difficult Truths of God's incomprehensibility and sovereignty. They drive Paul not to him and Hall. Not to dance around difficulty. Not to, to figure out a way to explain God in a way that will make him palatable to the people around him. They drive him to awe. And ascribe glory to the one true God. For from him and through him and to him, verse 36 are all things soli deo gloria. To Him be glory forever. Yes, God made everything. And why? Why did God make you in all things? There's a children's catechism question for you. Why did God make you in all things? The answer, for His own glory. That's not the context. Why did God reject Esau in favor of Jacob? 
Why does God use Jacob's rejection of the Messiah to bring the Gentiles in? Why is that part of His plan? For His own glory. I may not be able to understand that. Left to myself, I might not even want that. That might not be the way I would have done things. His ways are not my ways. His judgments and ways are unsearchable and inscrutable. Who am I to give Him counsel to? Who am I that He would be indebted to me? I place my hands over my mouth. He's driven to admit that from God comes creation and redemption. Through Him comes creation and redemption. To Him, for His glory, our creation and redemption. Our salvation from the, the planning to the accomplishing to the applying is all for His glory. All of His Sovereign, incomprehensible will. God is, we see in this passage, we see an incomprehensible God, a sovereign God. We also see the glory of God. Maybe the world in which you and I live doesn't need a God that can be explained away by human reason. It doesn't need a God that that you and I sit in authority over. Maybe it needs a God that would be incomprehensible, sovereign, and to Him and to whom alone be glory forever. We as Christians, we don't need a smaller, weaker God. We don't need a pocket-sized God. God to to carry around with us. We need a sovereign, incomprehensible God to whom belongs all glory, laud, and honor. May we take that God out into this world that it might then bow 